0: This morning, uh, let me introduce myself to you again, and then we'll open God's Word together today. So my name is Matt Athey. I'm one of the assistant pastors at our church in Folsom. Um, I actually work by vocationally I have a secular job that I work that I was telling Pastor Rick, my job helps me afford the ability to be a pastor in California. So I, I'm glad to be able to do that, and it's a real joy uh, to be with you this morning. My wife Amy in the back there, uh, she's over there. And then our three kids, Caleb, William, and Emily. Uh, they're back with in somewhere in this complex with uh, someone, um, but I'm sure they're safe. Uh, you'll recognize them instantly. They don't look like us at all. Uh, we have adopted the three of them, and i uh, love to tell you that story over time, but uh, God has been good to us with giving us those three kids, and we're so privileged to be here with you this morning. Um, I have to say, I know I said this a couple of times, this church built property is beautiful. I just am astounded with what you did with all of this space. Um, It is really, really neat. I'm privileged to be here. You were joking about the drive over. I loved it. I think it's beautiful. It's just that rugged uh, mountains and beauty. I I really enjoy the drive over, um, but it was early. That is true. So uh, we're here, and uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm 89 this morning. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm 89, and we'll look at that together this morning. I wonder how many times you have prayed, similar to the way I have prayed, Lord, show me your will. Uh, I'm guessing if you're a Christian who's walked with the Lord for any number of years, that it is probably countless the amount of times that you have prayed a version of that prayer uh, to have God reveal what is next for you or what is, what is going on currently. And that should be really important. Uh, we should be, as believers, Uh, endeavoring to daily, weekly, monthly, every year walk in the will of God, and that is something that's really important for us as Christians. But there is a tension that comes with striving to live in the will of God, and it is, is kind of what we heard in that second chorus of that song we just sang, when God hides his face, when darkness seems to what is God up to? And that's the tension because knowing and understanding God's will can be very confusing at times. And if we're being truly honest, there are times when we look at what's going on in our own life, maybe it's nationally in the United States, it's worldwide, whatever the case may be, and you really do wonder what God is doing. And let me remind us or help us with that, that that is not necessarily an unspiritual question. That question of what God is doing is all throughout Scripture, particularly the Old Testament. We're going to look at one of those instances this morning. And so you've probably been there. You're praying, God, I want to know your will, and these things are happening, and whatever the case may be. And you're asking yourself, how can this, whatever that is, how can this fit into God's plans? And the reality is sometimes there's not a really clear answer. And I think that's what Psalm 89 addresses. I I don't know. I picked this up from somewhere, so this is not original to me. But I think we can call these moments the dark side of God's will. Have you ever seen any clips uh, just a couple years ago, I think, or whatever it was? Amy will correct me on the dates. I'm. You said you're bad with names. You have no idea. I have kids in our youth group that I've known for like 10 years, and I still look at them in the face, and I call them the wrong name. So... Um, Whenever I, if I'm giving factual information today uh, relative to dates, it'll be wrong. So Amy, my, Amy's my detail person. But whatever it was a couple years ago, there was an eclipse. I remember walking out with the kids and getting to see that. And an eclipse is such a fascinating thing. I can remember the first one I uh, observed. I think I was in seventh or eighth grade, something like that. And it's just a unique, unique perspective to know that the sun is really there, but it's completely dark, except just around the edges. And that's kind of like what these moments in God's will are like. You know God is there. There's no question in our mind. We're walking by faith. I know God is there. I know He's doing something good. I know He's gracious. I know He's kind. But right now, God, if I'm being truly honest, it feels dark. It feels cold. It feels lonely and you're confused. And that is what Psalm 89 addresses. And so look at this psalm. Um, It's 52 verses, so it's quite lengthy. Um, We're not going to read it right now. We're going to read all of it though throughout the duration of the message. I'm afraid that if I read it now to communicate some points later, we're going to have to read it again, and that'll just add some time. Not that it's unnecessary to read God's Word, but I want to make it real specific as we get to that. And so one thing this psalm will do, it will help us recognize that when we have these moments of what are you doing, God, we're not alone. Uh, We're just looking at Psalm 89 this morning. We could look at myriads of the psalms and certain verses in certain psalms, and this was a big theme of what God was teaching these men that wrote the psalms. And I want to think of it this way this morning as we begin. Uh, The brother back there asked me what my title of my sermon was this morning, and so I'll tell you what it was, is, is we're going to call what we're talking about this morning, A Recipe for Disaster. Uh, my wife likes to cook. Uh, she's an amazing cook, she, and, I, and I say this in truthfulness, uh, everything she does is good, but some stuff is way better, all right? And I think that's okay to say. Um, I hope I'm okay to say that. Uh, if I were to say, well, there's two things that Amy cooks that are probably the best, bar none, would be her apple pie, just off melts in your mouth, it's so good, and her homemade biscuits. Like those two things, not healthy, and I don't care, okay? They're so good. And I don't know how long she's made those. We've been married almost 16 years this summer, so it's been at least close to that length of time. But I know that with the biscuits and the apple pie, like she knows that recipe really, really well. I mean, I'm sure if you asked her today after church, she could probably write down almost everything on the recipe cards. But every time we do it, or every time she does it, I just partake of it, right? Every time she goes to make these items, she always asks for the recipe cards. Why? It's not because she doesn't know the information or know how to cook it. She just wants that real basic reminder of making sure she's got everything in order. And I think that's what Psalm 89 does is that it gives us the recipe. We could call it the recipe card, if you will. It gives us the recipe for how to respond when life is confusing. And how do we respond when life is confusing? David, Sorry, David. Ethan, actually, is the psalmist here. He's going to point that out for us. But I want you to notice something really interesting about this psalm. As we go through it, you're going to notice that David, in these 52 verses, David spends... Almost two-thirds of the psalm not dealing with the confusing part. That's going to seem odd to us as we get into this, but I want us to understand what David is doing. So really all the way through verse probably about 38. So we go through verse 37. David's just dealing with normal life, we'll call it. Okay, So on this recipe card, we want to think in terms of like, what are things that should occupy the life of a believer on a regular basis. We'll get to the, the conflict of the sermon in a minute, but I want you to think of what David points out or what some regular themes, some regular practices, some regular habits that should accompany the life of a believer at any time of their life. And then we'll get to the, the conflict of the sermon. So first of all, he's going he's to start with dealing in verses 1 through 4 about intentional praise. And we're going to see that David calls out very vividly that intentional praise of God should be a regular recurring theme in every believer's life. But before we talk about the psalm, I want to talk about the big picture. Look under the word Psalm 89, and in most of your Bibles you'll have this phrase. you will say, Maskell of Ethan the Ezraite. Not really worried about Ethan at the moment. He's mentioned a few other times in Scripture. Apparently he was a very wise man. Uh, primarily because his wisdom is contrasted only with Solomon's. That tells you a lot about what Ethan, who he was. But that idea of mascal is important for us to understand. Ethan apparently was some sort of musician. He would have led worship in the temple. And a mascal would have been a song that teaches. So he would have been writing this song to teach a specific point. And I think the point that Ethan was trying to write to is this. This is to teach us how to think and live in the midst of challenging circumstances. But Ethan begins it with intentional praise. So listen as I read these first four verses. And I want you to hear just how praiseworthy Ethan is really at this stage of his life. And he says this, He says, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. For I have said, Mercy shall be built up forever. Thy faithfulness shalt thou establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant, Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. I want you to catch the theme of these four verses. You read the words mercies, verse 1, faithfulness, verse 1, mercy, verse 2, and faithfulness, verse 2. All of those are the same root Hebrew word for steadfast love. So we could really be saying that David, or Ethan rather, excuse me, Ethan is praising God for his steadfast, his continual love. And what does he primarily point to in verse 4? He talks about this throne that will be established forever. Now, to us, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But for the Hebrew person, this was a big, big deal. Hold your fingers here and go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 for a second. And I want you to see where Ethan is pulling this particular point from. And we're just talking now, Just all you need to know at this point is that Ethan is intentionally praising God. Okay, so look at um, 2 Samuel 7, and we're going to pick up our reading in verse, uh, we'll just read verse 12 through about verse 16. And it says this, And when thy days be fulfilled, pause, this is God talking to David. Okay, now this might seem a little technical, and you're like, where are we going with this, Matt? This is this plays a huge part in this psalm, so stick with me on this, Okay. So God's talking to David, and he says, And when thy days be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, that's key. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But here's a key verse we're looking at. But my mercy or steadfast love, shall not depart away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I put before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Okay, so let's go back to Psalm 89. When Ethan is praising God for his steadfast love, he's praising God for that specific promise. He's saying, okay, God... You promised David that your throne, his throne would never cease. But I'm going to praise you for that. Now, look at verses 5 through 18. He's going to continue this theme of habits that should be part of the daily Christian life. So it's intentional praise. And then he kind of shifts gears out of that generic praise to really a praise of specificity about the character of God. Let me pause here for a moment. If you don't regularly find yourself praising the character of God, it's probably a little bit of selfishness on your part. Because if all your focus is on what God is doing, you're missing the point. God wants you to know Him. And, and Ethan spends chapter or verse 5 through verse 18 on that very specific thing, Okay. Let's look at some of this here. Let's read verses 5 through 8. And we're just going to make a few points as we go here and really go quickly through the rest of this next couple of sections. Okay, so verse 5. He says, And the heavens shall praise thy wonders. Lost my place. There we go. the heavens shall praise thy wonders, O Lord, thy faithfulness or thy steadfast love, also in the congregation of the saints. For who in the heaven can be compared unto the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened unto the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee? Or to thy faithfulness, steadfast love, round about thee. So he starts to praise God for just his majesty, his grandeur, his immensity. And he asks this really pointed question, who is a God that can be likened unto the Lord? And the answer is a resounding, no one can be likened unto God. If you want a, a, a fun read this afternoon, uh, Mark Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, that is one of my favorite passages in the Bible um, my family is probably tired of me preaching out uh, Psalm Isaiah 40, um, so I'm going to talk about it just a little bit this morning. Uh, it is a beautiful passage in God's Word, where David, I'm sorry, Isaiah just goes through this beauty and the majesty and the glory of God. It is an amazing Psalm or amazing phrase there, and that's kind of what Ethan is doing. All right, let's look at verses nine through thirteen. So praising God for just who he is, his majesty, now a different theme a little bit. He says, Thou rulest the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. Thou hast broken Rahab in pieces as one that is slain. Thou hast scattered thine enemies with thy strong arm. The heavens are thine, the earth also is thine. As for the Lord and the fullness fullness thereof, thou hast founded them. The north and the south thou hast created them. Tabor and Hermon shall rejoice in thy name. Thou hast a mighty arm, strong in thy hand, and high is thy right hand. So he begins to recount some themes from history, some of the deliverance and the the restoration that God brought throughout Israel's history. and, And just these basic themes that he brings out would have been very vivid to the forefront of a godly Jew. So he praises God for what he has been doing. And then the final way he praises God is in verses uh, 14 through verse 18. This is how he says this. He says, "'Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. Blessed is the people that knoweth joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the, in the light of thy countenance. In thy name shall they rejoice all the day.'" And in thy righteousness shall they be exalted for thou art the glory of their strength and in thy favor our horns shall be exalted for the lord is our defense and the holy one of israel is our king then thou speakest in vision i'm oh, sorry i got to of myself we'll pause there verse 18. so he just really then praises god for just what we say and we call his his moral superiority not only is there none like god in might there is none like God in his acts throughout history. There is none like God in character. The point he makes here very broadly is there is no one like God. And these are themes that Evan must have been repeating Ethan must have been repeating to himself on a constant basis. Now we're going to shift gears a little bit more. So he's praising God, he's exalting in God. And then in verses 19 through 37, and I know we're going a little faster, but I want to get this context, he begins to rehearse the promises of God. And he teaches us something really important here. That not only do we praise God and we exalt in God, but that we ought to be regularly rehearsing the promises of God. Uh, pastor Ron Perry, who my pastor in, in Folsom, uh, often says this. He says, I wonder if we, if everybody were to do a popcorn praise testimony this week, and we're gonna, just going to say, hey, we're just going to talk about promises of God. How many could we get through before we hit our duplicate? And his point is, we probably shouldn't ever cross over because there's just so many in the Bible but I think a lot of times we fail to remind ourselves of the vast promises of God. And David's going to be, or Ethan's going to remind himself of one very specific promise that's going to tie us back to verse four. And I'm not going to really say a lot about it, but I want you to listen to the way that Ethan writes this verse this section with compassion and affection and promise. I'm just gonna read it all in its entirety, beginning at verse 19 down through verse 37. He says this, then thou spakest in vision to the Holy One. Okay, that's a let's pause there for a second. The Holy One there would we'll be actually talking about David. We don't we don't you talk about people as the holy ones, but that is who he's talking about. And he says this I have laid help upon one that is mighty I have exalted one chosen out of the people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil have I anointed him. With whom my hand shall be established, mine arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. And I will beat down his foes before his face and plague them that hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be upon him. And my name shall his horn be exalted." I will set his hand also in the sea, and his right hand in the rivers. He shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn, higher than the kings of the earth. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore, and my covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed also will I make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven." If his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statutes and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. Isn't that a cool phrase? I will not suffer. I will not allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips, once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon, and as a faithful witness in heaven. That's powerful. Especially for us. Because we know that he wasn't just talking about David and Solomon And that particular group of men, who is he ultimately promising here? Promising Christ. And so, friends, we see the ultimate fulfillment of that promise right there. And that's what Ethan is so bound up in. God, I know that you're good because of that promise right there. You have said this thing that you're doing will never fail. You will not allow your faithfulness to fail at all that is a man that is overwhelmed with praise to god and i would love if we could end right there but life doesn't end there and in between verses 37 and 38 it's almost like you can hear the screeching of brakes right you ever been driving i'll confess as a a older as a teenage driver at some point in the past uh, this may have happened where you're driving, you're a little distracted, you know the road really well, and all of a sudden there's a corner right in front of you, and you've got to make a decision. Do you keep driving quickly or do you press the brakes? Depends on what perspective you make, but you might want to press the brakes. It would be a good idea, right? And that's like life. Life just happens. And all of a sudden, you're you're in this really good phase of life. Life is going well. There's tons to praise God for. You're rejoicing in the promises of God. I mean, just all around you. You can see the goodness of God, and then bam, like it's out of nowhere. Whoa, where did that come from? What happened, God? And that's where Ethan takes this psalm. And we could almost call this like that. That's why I use the imagery of the eclipse, because it's almost as if Ethan is looking at life and saying, God, it's not really sure where you are here. Because we need to understand the the context. Now, we don't necessarily know exactly when Ethan wrote this psalm, but we do know what what particular point of history he was talking about. He is referring to the the promise. He's going to be talking about the situation that happens right after the captivity. And the captivity for the Jewish people was, was not an ideal circumstance. Um, the Babylonians had laid siege to Jerusalem for about 18 months. They took their king, at that time Zedekiah, captive. They blinded him. Um, they murdered his children in front of him. And then they were all taken captive as prisoners. And that's where Ethan starts to write. And it's almost as if he's looking at this and he's talking, thinking about, your king, Israel, is a blind captive. Your great city is plundered and decimated. The temple is completely demolished. We would call that, as I mentioned earlier, the dark side of God's will. That these promises that sounded so precious and so personal just the other day are long in the rearview mirror now. And that doesn't mean that you've walked away from God. It just means that you're human. Because the sad reality of a sin-cursed world is that there will be pain. And there will be trial. And there will be difficulty. Some minor, some very major. And it all varies. And we're going to read verses 38 through 45. And I'm just going to read it all in entirety and come back and make a few comments about it. But I want you to hear the pain with which Ethan writes here. And at the same time, I want you to count how many times the word thou... Appears. It's it's quite significant. So look for pain and look for the presence of thou or the idea of God here. Here's what Ethan says. But thou hast cast off and abhorred. Thou hast been wroth with thine anointed. Thou hast made void the covenant of thy servant. Thou hast profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. Thou hast broken down all his hedges. Thou hast brought his strongholds to ruin. All that pass by the way spoil him. He is a reproach to his neighbors. Thou hast set up the right hand of his adversaries. Thou hast made all his enemies to rejoice. Thou hast also turned the edge of his sword and hast not made him to stand in the battle. Thou hast made his glory to cease and cast his throne down to the ground. The days of his youth hast thou shortened. Hast thou covered him with shame? Thou hast covered him with shame. That's pretty difficult language. I mean, you're, you're interacting with a man who is really at odds here. Because we just looked at 37 verses that this man wrote about all that he knows about God. He knows God is powerful and mighty and good and long-suffering, and gracious, and merciful. He has promised that his throne will never in, will never not endure. It will always endure forever, and ever, and ever. But then I'm looking at that, God, and I'm confused. I'm sure you've been there. I know I have. Our family has been there at certain times. And these times, their promises of God, they just feel... So far away, and we need to recognize that why Ethan and why we should have a conflict with the difficulties of life is because of our trust in God. Because what Ethan's going to do, he's going to teach us something really important in these last five verses of this passage. It's so powerful, which is why I wanted to get to this. But I want us to I want us to dwell in the pain because I think sometimes, and that seems a little mean, I know. But I think sometimes Christians are too easy to blow past the pain of life. And, and we, gl- we glibly quote to ourselves or to others things like Romans 8.28, which is a powerful and wonderful verse. And we should believe that God is working all things together for good. But if you've ever been on the receiving end of that verse at the wrong time, with the wrong kind of temperament, it kind of hurts frankly. Like, y'all, you know how bad life hurts right now? I I know that. I believe it. I'm not rejecting God, but let me deal with this. Let me help. have God help me. I don't need that right now. And I think sometimes we as Christians, we're too easily, we blow past it, and we don't wrestle with this. And I think if we don't wrestle with the pain of life, which conflicts mentally with what we know to be true about God, we'll never truly grow. If if it's all so simple, then we're never going to truly grow. Because what you're going to see Ethan do next is ask some pretty pointed questions to God. And and before we get to that, I want to make a note of this. What you're going to see Ethan doing is really critical to the Christian life. You should be, if you're truly walking with the Lord or desire to do so, you should be questioning God. Really? Sounds pretty blasphemous. You should be. But there is a very vivid difference between the question of a skeptic and the question of a man or woman walking by faith. You're going to see it real plainly right here. The skeptic says, God, I see this pain. You can't be what I thought you were. I'm rejecting that. That's a skeptic's point of view. A man of faith or a woman's faithful point of view will say, God, I see this pain in front of me. I know you're still true, though, so help me understand how this works together, right? You want to say, okay, God, I know you're doing all things well, but I don't really see it. Help me understand. That's what Ethan's going to begin to ask. So I want to look at these, uh, look at verses 46, 45, rather, through, sorry, 46 through 51. Let's read these together. He says, how long, Lord? Wilt thou hide thyself forever? Shall thy wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. Wherefore hast thou made all men in vain? What man is he that liveth and shall not see death? Shall he deliver his soul from the hand of the grave? Lord, where are thy former loving kindnesses, or steadfast mercy, Which thou swearest unto David in thy truth. Remember, Lord, the reproach of thy servants, how I do bear in my bosom the reproach of all the mighty people, wherewith thine enemies have reproached, O Lord, wherewith they have reproached the footsteps of thine anointed. Again, this appeal that Ethan is making to God is based upon his understanding of who God is. Because he's going right back to these things he praised God for, which is why we spent so much time on there. Everything he's asking in these four verses is based right on everything he already knows to be true. For example, notice he says, Where are thy former loving kindnesses, verse 49, which thou swearest unto David? Okay, God, I know you promised David this. It is written down, I've heard it for years but I don't see it, God, if I'm being honest. Where is it? Help me to see. There's a whole book on the Bible. uh, If you ever ever read the book of Habakkuk, it's not a real familiar book to most of us, but this is exactly what Habakkuk wrestled with. He was a man who was seeing tremendous devastation, tremendous just toil in his country, and he asked God, are you going to do it this way, God? Is that really what you want to do? Because I don't get it. And friend, trust me, even though I don't know you, listen to the counsel of Scripture. Asking God what He's doing from a basis of faith is never wrong. That's how we grow. God wants us to ask Him questions because He wants us to trust in Him in complete confidence. But notice this is not where Ethan ends the psalm. He doesn't end with the questions. He ends with an emphatic statement of praise. Blessed be the Lord forevermore. Amen and amen. And that's the goal. The goal of trial is to get you to a spot that no matter what your eyes see, No matter what your body experiences, no matter what your pocketbook experiences, you come to the end of the conclusion that God is worthy of praise because he has not failed you. He will not fail you. He will keep his promises because of his loving kindness. So, and as we wrap it up, let's pull out that recipe card and let me give us five things that I think really should be on our recipe card of dealing with disaster, dealing with times when confusion abounds. First of all, and we're just going to run back through the psalm in in a little bit different way. First of all, we want to make sure we note, don't trust your feelings. I had a seminary professor who said this, you talk to yourself, you don't listen to yourself. Okay, might not want to talk to yourself out loud, unless you're privately in your room. But you should talk to yourself, because your feelings are sinful. They are. Your feelings are not redeemed. They're emotions. Emotions should be like the caboose on a train. You drive your emotions by faith in God. Don't let your emotions drive you. Because in the midst of a difficulty, if you're letting the emotion of pain and sadness and sorrow and anger and hurt and frustration drive you, you will be bitter, you will be constantly angry, and you will ruin relationships that will take years to repair, not with counting your own relationship with God. So don't don't trust your feelings. Number two, as we've seen evident throughout this psalm over and over again, cling to the promises of God. Make the intake of the promises of God a regular, steady diet for yourself. Maybe it's taking a journal or a notebook or a piece of paper, and as you're reading your Bible on a regular basis, every time you come across a promise, you write it down. And when you get into that moment of just like, okay, God, I'm getting ready to go into despair here, you whip that out and you just read through those promises. Because God will never fail one of his promises, not one. We cling to God for promi- cling to God's promises. Number three, we want to ask God for help. We want to ask God for help, because we recognize that we cannot help ourselves. I think it was Benjamin Franklin who unhelpfully popularized the concept of God helps those who helps themselves. Wrong theology people. That is not biblical thinking. That is ungodly wisdom. God does not help those who help themselves. He helps those because we can't help ourselves. And that's what God wants to do, to help you. So we three things so far. We don't trust our feelings. We cling to God's promises. We ask God for help. Number four, we choose to bless. And that word choose is very intentional. Because in the moment of pain, of sorrow, of hurt, of frustration wanting to praise God it's not real natural it is not you want to I mean we've seen some painful comments from Ethan and that's where we want to live because if we're honest sometimes it feels good just to be angry right it feels good to be upset and i want to live there I want to just leave me alone let me be angry for a little bit don't live there please don't live there choose to bless God and Job gives us a really vivid example of this without going into the whole story of Job. As you remember there early on, after Job's immense trials, all the loss and all the heartache, his wife crumbles and, and, and says some very blasphemous things. Just curse God and die. And Job says something very instructive. He says, Shall we receive from God, excuse me, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? He's not blaming God for evil, but what he's asking is, are we only in this for when God is good, or when life is going well? Because truly, the Christian life takes some endurance, and it takes some stick to to follow a God that you cannot see, you cannot audibly hear. It takes, it takes some faith to follow a God in that, so we're going we're gonna to bless God through that. And then fifth, and, and most important... I want to consider Jesus. I want to consider Jesus. Because you read Psalm 89, and you're like, I don't know anything about thrones or promises or covenants or anything. I don't know anything about that, right? I don't even, and I'm raising my hand, I don't even know any, like, completely Hebrew people. Like, I don't even know anybody that would have been the direct recipients of this promise. So how can that bless me? Well, look at Hebrews chapter 12 for a second. We'll end there. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. We'll end there. The author to Hebrews invites us to consider Christ because, as I mentioned earlier, Christ himself is the true fulfillment of the covenant to David. He is the rightful heir, both politically and righteously, to the throne of Israel. He is our full king in every way. And if our king could experience what he experienced... We ought to give that some thought, because if there's anybody ever in the history of this world who has truly experienced the dark side of God's will, it is Jesus Christ. None of us, in truthfulness, could ever say to God, have you forsaken me, and it be true. God has never forsaken us, but for a moment on the cross, he completely forsook Christ, completely, completely. And thus you see the literal darkness that descends upon the Calvary. And it was a dark, cold, damp day because Christ was being forsaken by his God, his Father, for our behalf. And to that end, the author of Hebrews says this. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy of That was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, and here is the admonition to us lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. You recognize what this author to Hebrews is dealing with? That in our humanity, in our personal sinful dealings with pain, we will faint. We will grow weary. We will fall into a pit of despair that without Christ reconciling us on his behalf, we will never recover from. And yet, with Christ, we have all that we need to pull us out of that pit of despair because it does a multitude of things. And if nothing else, believer, take this this morning, and if you're not sure if God is going to be in your favor and fulfill all those promises that He has so clearly revealed to you, consider Christ. He is the ironclad proof that God will do what He has said He will do because He is the complete fulfillment of all the promises of God find their fulfillment in Christ and so i don't know where you are today Uh, i don't know if there's any particular darkness in your life or or despair or struggle Um, generally speaking the last two years have not been great Uh, as a country it's been rough Um, economically politically uh, financially all sorts of ways and that's not that's just very broad not even mentioning personal illnesses personal pain, loss of family members, etc., et that cetera, et cetera, we could continue to pile on some of this pain. So maybe you're not currently in pain, and that's a blessing. Consider that a joy of the Lord. So for you who are not struggling currently with anything significant or of weight to you today, take this as something to tuck away for the future, like a recipe card. Just Just tuck it away somewhere convenient, come back to it as needed. But for somebody here, maybe multi- more than some you're you're in the literal midst of pain, physical, emotional, etc. Keep this at the forefront of your mind. Don't walk away. Live in this reality of Psalm 89, because it's going to be it could be a really long road. Because you'll notice as we end, Psalm 89, he never asks God, "Whence come my help? Lord, you alone." are where our help comes from. May our eyes be focused upon you. May our hearts follow emotionally and praise to you. And may our lives be changed because of our walk with you as you've helped us deal with difficult circumstances. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Pastor. <clears throat> Let's.